Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Today is episode 23, and we are talking with Oren J. Sofer, author of three books, uh, I think I've counted correctly, and also a longtime meditator and teacher, uh, contributor to mindfulness training programs for apps and organizations, and including the 10% Happier app, which is where I think I first discovered Oren. <laughs> and um, yeah, today we're talking about this really terrific book, which I think is is probably hasn't been out for that long. It's called "Say What You Mean: A Non A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication." So, uh, yeah, thanks, Oren. And uh, did I get your bio mostly correct? Yeah, yeah, you got it. You got it right, Josh. And yeah, the book came out um, just about two years ago, so still pretty, still pretty fresh. Yeah, I like the cover art a lot. Oh, thanks. Me too. Yeah, they did a nice job. Cool. So, um, yeah, I think I think at least for me, who's only been exposed to nonviolent communication, sort of a little bit, and to I guess most people I would say have never even heard of it, though they have heard of mindfulness. So, can you give us just a little description of what nonviolent communication is and why it sounds like such a weird kind of communication? Yeah. Yeah. Um. It's one of those things where you can give a surface answer and then kind of the deeper you go into the, the practice and the theory, um, the more life-changing it becomes. So I'll, maybe I'll give a window into both the, the surface level and the deeper level. Um, <clears throat> the surface level is that it's a communication technique that helps us to work together more effectively in our lives and understand ourselves and others with more clarity and compassion. And uh, the, the man who kind of invented and codified nonviolent communication, a uh, psychologist by the name of Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, um, he called it nonviolent communication <clears throat> for a couple different reasons, as far as I understand. One was that in his research, he found that the ways in which we think, speak, and on a deeper level perceive the world make a big difference in whether or not we are willing to use violence as a strategy to accomplish our aims in life. That, that language and thought actually play an important role in how we view other people, and situations when our needs aren't met. So that was one reason was to kind of highlight this connection between thought and speech and our willingness as human beings and readiness as human beings to resort to violence. The, uh, the other reason was to place this practice and training method very explicitly within the tradition of Kingian and Gandhian nonviolence because he really saw communication as an essential component of social change, that if we don't find ways to think, speak, and listen differently in spite of our best intentions and beautiful visions, we run the risk of recreating the same patterns and systems of domination, exploitation, and control if we don't change our language and our thinking structures because the pattern of coercion, manipulation, domination is actually embedded in our minds in the way that we think and perceive. 
so we're getting we're getting into some of the deeper layers here and i would say kind of at the deepest level nonviolent communication is not a communication technique actually that it's an awareness discipline it's really about training how we pay attention and understanding our own minds and using the training method as a support to live a life of nonviolence to to align our thoughts, our words, our actions, um, with what for me is our deepest nature as human beings, which is compassion. Got it. Yeah. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, uh, the, so the word violence, I guess, in it's, uh, sort of most vanilla or layman interpretation normally involves like one person, you know, kind of smacking someone else or, or worse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think, I think in this case, maybe it, it means more, um, yeah. and can include like patterns of speech and behavior. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily, uh, physical contact. <laughs> Is that fair to say? Yeah, abs- absolutely. So that word violence, um, has a, a range of definitions and ways we can understand it. So when I was speaking before, I was speaking quite literally about physical violence and the the willingness to use physical violence, which is distinct from force. You can use force in a way that is benevolent, loving, protective. So I want to make that distinction first, that I'm not saying that there aren't times in life where force is necessary to protect, to defend, um, to take care of situations or those we love, you know, a little kid running out into the street or about to reach for the stove, we're very forceful to stop that child or protect them. Um, so, but as you're pointing to violence goes beyond ver- uh, physical violence, obviously we have verbal violence, emotional violence. Um, so a couple of different definitions of violence that I've found helpful um, in my own life um, and in the work that I do and the writing that I've done. Um, so, uh, philosopher and, um, thinker in peace and conflict studies, Johann Galtung, uh, has a definition of violence that I, I quite like. He says, violence is any avoidable impairment of basic human needs, any avoidable impairment of basic human needs. So that, that really expands the definition we can recognize poverty, hunger, uh, racism, homophobia, sexism as forms of violence because they trespass against our basic human needs and rights for clean water, meaningful employment, dignity, respect, inclusion, belonging, community, safety. Um, or, so those are, are forms of violence, structural violence. Um, another definition that um, a colleague and friend of mine, Kazu Haga, talks about in his book, um, Healing Resistance, uh, from a workshop he led, and this one young woman offered this definition, much more colloquial way, violence hurts. Hmm. Violence hurts. We all know, we all know when we're hurt. You know, we know when something someone says or their tone of voice or even something someone does, you know, inviting everyone but us. We, we know when we feel hurt. We know when there's an action that has that kind of an impact on us. And um, there can be a quality of violence, obviously, depending on the context that can be, um, you know, 
you might use a different word. We don't want to exaggerate. Um, and then Marshall Rosenberg has um, not so much a definition of violence, but an explanation of it that also is quite radical and transformative. He says, um, all violence is a tragic expression of our unmet human needs. And so this is this is really getting to the heart of how this training of nonviolent communication, which is really a training in our awareness and attention, how it can open the door to compassion and help us to actually see one another's humanity when we disagree, um, when our aims are diametrically opposed, um, when people have done things that we abhor to see human behavior, including horrific acts of violence, not to justify them in any way, but to be able to see them through the lens of compassion and humanity, to see on some level, what if this person were reaching for something deeper, for some quality of fulfillment or understanding or belonging that they might not even be aware of consciously. Those are a few different ways to understand and look at violence when we talk about nonviolent communication. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, mm. I admit initially I was skeptical of using the term in that way or, mm -hmm. or just beyond just the sort of knee-jerk um, definition we have for it. Um, mm -hmm. But it seems useful. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and it's also, there are other words for it. Sometimes it's called compassionate communication. Mm. Um, other people will call it like life-connected communication because we're really connecting with what's alive in us, the emotions and the deeper needs or values that animate our life. And maybe that was the piece I was going to share actually was that the fun, one of the fundamental premises behind the whole model and the training, the training itself is a, a way of, kind of identifying specific aspects of our experience that help us get clearer about what's important and why to us and to other people. And at the heart of it is this premise that comes not actually from Dr. Rosenberg, but from his mentors and other um, thinkers and leaders in the field of humanistic psychology, people like Carl Rogers or Abraham Maslow, um, which is this idea this idea or this concept of fundamental underlying, we could even say universal human needs. And that, that word need, particularly in Western culture, carries a lot of complex connotations that we don't actually, not really what we're referring to when we talk about human needs in this context. So we're not talking about being needy. We're not talking about being demanding, controlling or manipulating others. Um, we're not talking about being self-centered. What we are pointing to are uh, these fundamental underlying motivating factors in human life that are shared, or we could say that are more shared than not. So obviously we all know that the human species needs food and water and air and shelter and medicine and so forth. That's quite obvious. Um, but of course, those are the called basic needs because that's just the beginning. You know, we also need community. We need belonging. We need empathy and understanding and love. We need touch. We need play, joy, right? These all of these beautiful relational needs that we share with many other mammals in the, the mammalian brain, the limbic brain. 
But then as human beings, we have what are sometimes referred to as higher needs, or I will often call them spiritual needs because they point to our interconnectedness and our connection with something larger than ourselves. So we have needs for meaning, for beauty, uh, for contribution, for peace, for transcendence. And the understanding is that all of our actions in life can be seen as attempts to meet these underlying needs, whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we're successful or not. So, you know, even things like smoking cigarettes, which destroys our health, can be seen as a strategy to meet needs for comfort and ease and relaxation and belonging. So as we start to get clearer about what's motivating our actions in life and what's perhaps underneath other people's uh, speech or actions, it gives us a shared framework to actually talk about what's important, understand each other and, and work together more, uh, more effectively. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I remember the point that you just made, I remember reading it in the book and mm. I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine and trying to push it to its, its logical extreme because mm. I'm a software engineer and I sit in lots of meetings, meetings, a lot of which you know, don't really make much sense or really connect us on a deep spiritual level. Sure. Um, and I was trying to figure out if, you know, some suggestion of some new feature we should add or something like that, if even those really like basic sort of conversations relate to, you know, satisfying some personal need. Sure. Um, and I think you could probably make a case for it, although yeah. Yeah. for some of the really extreme uh, Dilbert esque <laughs> conversations, it might be harder. Well, I, I think you point to something uh, important there, Josh, which is that um, there are different levels of needs, um, and there are also different, we could say, dimensions of needs. So, different levels of needs would be things like, um, you know, I want to. I want to get along with my coworkers. I want to have a positive relationship with the people I work with. Okay, that's mm. one level of need where we might actually talk about that in the workplace. Yeah, um, but underneath that, we can maybe recognize that there are deeper emotional and psychological needs for belonging, or knowing that I matter, or being valued and seen as a as a human being. Now, those needs might be present consciously or unconsciously. But, you know, given the environment or the context, we we might not choose to talk about that because <laughs> there isn't an agreement or understanding that this is the nature of our relationship in the workplace, you know, to actually satisfy or engage with that level of depth in our human life. It doesn't mean they don't exist. It's just that it's not, you know, we don't have that agreement. That's not, that's not why we're here. So mm -hmm. those are different levels of needs. And there are also different dimensions of needs. So there's this personal dimension we've been talking about, but we all, we also have needs at an organizational level. So, you know, a particular company has a need to be financially solvent, uh, has a need to um, have products that satisfy their consumers and stand out in the marketplace that fill a particular niche to have quality, to have excellence. Um, in the workplace, we have needs for information and resources so these are other kinds of needs that operate more at an organizational level or a company level. And then we could talk about needs on a larger communal level, on a collective level. You know, needs for um, 
discourse, for honest conversation, for access to accurate information in the public sphere. Huge need in today's world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, need for uh, shared values to hold a society together. So needs operate at different levels depending on the context. And so that question as you're engaging with, like pushing it to the logical limit, I think if you switch the context, you have to bear in mind, okay, well, which set of needs am I now thinking about? Because the, the entity, the body is no longer the person. The unit is no longer the individual. Mm. The unit is actually maybe the department or the team or the company as a whole. Yeah. So that, that's how the model applies in these different contexts. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for your thoroughness. <laughs> sure. I'm kind of curious how you got into the world of nonviolent communication, if, if you think the answer there is relevant for our conversation. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's, it's relevant to the, your podcast and the theme of anxiety and so forth. So, you know, I, I started meditating when I was about 19 and about five years in four or five years in, I was living and working at a meditation center in rural Massachusetts uh, as a cook, a residential cook, helping to cook meals for the retreats that were happening. And I noticed that the meditation practice wasn't really showing up, helping or translating into my conversations in my life with my coworkers in the kitchen. We would, you know, get into arguments about stupid stuff and the Examples I always give, which are real, is like how long to steam the broccoli for, you know, based on how firm or soft you like it cooked or like how to cut the carrots and things like this. Um, and then I noticed the kind of qualities of meditation, the sort of clarity, non-reactivity and compassion, kindness. I noticed these even less accessible, say, when I was talking with my parents at the time when I was mm -hmm. in my 20s. And so, you know, this really alerted to me um, that there was a gap in this very wholehearted endeavor I was engaged in of meditation and understanding my mind and becoming a better human being. I was like, well, gosh, you know, <laughs> if this stuff isn't helping me in my relationships and conversations, then there's something missing here. Um, so that was about the time that I, I was introduced to Dr. Rosenberg, um, first through his book um, and then through workshops and trainings uh, he was doing um, and the, as well as students of his locally were teaching classes. So I started taking classes and going to workshops and yeah, it just totally opened my eyes to so much that I, I wasn't seeing in my life. I remember the very first class I went to where I heard this idea, you know, that we all have human needs and everything we do in life can be seen and understood as an attempt to meet a need. Um, and the, one of the instructors, you know, asked everyone, okay, well, how many people here feel like you're a good listener? How do you think you're a good listener? Well, most of the hands went up. And then she asked, how many of you here when you listen know or are aware of what the other person is feeling and what they need or what's important to them? very few hands went up. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a revelation to me to recognize that one, um, just that I had needs <laughs> and that I was unaware of them. 
I was going through a particularly difficult time in my life. It wasn't just that I was having some arguments with my coworkers or my family. I felt depressed. Um, I felt particularly lost. You know, I was about 24 years old and, you know, just was like, what am I doing with my life and where am I going and what do I want to do? And, um, I was the, the, the community I was living in at the time, there were very few people my age. So I also mm-hmm. felt very isolated socially. I wasn't dating anyone. And, you know, as soon as I had this framework of human needs, I was like, well, of course I feel depressed. <laughs> like I'm not get- a lot of my needs aren't getting met. I have needs for community and belonging and, and friendship and intimacy and connection. And I was like, all of a sudden, like this whole world opened up. I was like, whoa. I have needs and I can actually, you know, advocate for them and take steps to fulfill them in life. And, and it really opened up a new uh, avenue of aliveness and vitality for me. Of course, now one of the things that happens for people as, and happened for me as well, you know, when we learn these tools and this concept, usually there's this stage where we become very self-focused because mm-hmm. it's like, gosh, I've been living my whole life you know, basically like oppressed internally by the way I've been socialized to feel ashamed of wanting anything and asking for anything from anyone. And that's a load of BS because I'm human and we all have all of these needs. So um, initially we can be a little obnoxious or self-centered. It's like, I have needs and I want you to meet them and kind of going around, you know, talking about our needs and demanding that people need them. And then eventually we start to recognize that we're not the only one with needs, that other people have needs too. And this is where, you know, the practice actually is intended is that it's not about meeting my needs. It's not about meeting your needs. It's actually about learning how to live in an interdependent world where we recognize that all living creatures are here with the planet is a shared experience. And so how do we live in a way that there's enough for everyone? How do we live in a way where we're honoring the dignity of all beings and really being sensitive to and aware of all of the different needs and trying to make choices and work together to share resources in a way that maximizes the number of needs that are met and minimizes the the harm and impact that we have on one another. That's really the goal of one of the goals um, of the practice is to give us a language and a framework to actually talk about that. Sure. Yeah. Actually, I'm really glad I asked you that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem perhaps that there is a gap because because my next question was, isn't mindfulness enough? Like we have to learn this thing too. Yeah. Know? Yeah. But yeah, it seems it seems really clear, especially from your personal experience. There's that I think John Kabat-Zinn quote that's like, "If you think you're so Zen, go spend a weekend with your family." Right. Um, yes. Exactly. This is perhaps the antidote to that, and and also there's the, I don't know if it's a valid criticism, but like if you're having a hard time and people say, "Oh, well, you just need to add 30 minutes in the morning," you know, to your sit, like that's maybe not a sufficient solution. Um, yeah, we have needs that need exactly need met. We can't. Yeah, it, it it's so funny. It's so interesting because <laughs> you keep thinking you find the thing, and then yes. there's like more things. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's you know that's the that's the irony of of not just meditation, but also I mean that's kind of the human condition in a way, right? It's that we we want this quick fix, and we want we want to know, we want the answer, and the answer that's going to be the answer forever that, you know, just tell me what, it, what is it? Like, where is it? How do I get it? 
I want it and I want it to be over so I don't have to think about it anymore. And of course, the reality is always otherwise that life is uncertain. It's chaotic. It's changing. We're changing all the time. And, and really, that's the level at which mindfulness practice and the kind of Buddhist roots of the Dharma, where it comes from, is, is, is pointing to. It's trying to help us to recognize and understand that our mind and consciousness are, are essentially like grasping at um, something that's not really graspable, that's always changing. But we like stability and we want things to feel comfortable and steady. And yet that's not the nature of the world. So what, what mindfulness practice does is it actually slowly starts to reveal the truth of what it is to be human and to be alive, which reveals in that process the futility and, and the limits of our habitual conditioned responses to living in a world of change and uncertainty and vulnerability. Now, of course, yes, there are things we can do to provide stability, to create you know, better living conditions for ourselves and our society. All that's true and wonderful. And at this more fundamental level, you know, we all we all know, we all experience it that anything can happen at any moment. You know, we we lose people we love, we lose our health, we lose our job, um, things don't go our way. So, what the mindfulness practice does is first it starts to reveal that. And it, it, it shows us another way of being that we can actually find a certain quality of poise and balance within this flood of change and uncertainty where our sense of inner stability and freedom and peace of mind is no longer dependent on fixing things in time, freezing them, getting what we want, avoiding what we don't want, or controlling or manipulating life, that there's a way of being that is more open and flexible and free that allows us to be directly and intimately in connection with life without getting flooded or overwhelmed or frightened, even when difficult things happen, even when uncertainty strikes. So that becomes, that's, that's kind of the fundamental level, that then becomes an invaluable and essential resource for navigating human relationship and for training our communication. So the mindfulness and the nonviolent communication really support each other. They, they're, they're synergistic. The mindfulness practice provides a foundation of awareness and resilience for relationship and communication. And what the nonviolent communication method does is it gives us concrete and practical tools to translate and embody that awareness in our interactions and actually handle the messiness of life. Because we can be aware and balanced, but, but still have to figure out, you know, how are we going to deal with this situation where you want this thing and I want this other thing and I'm still mad at you for that thing that happened a year ago. So it's, it's complicated. We've got to, got to, you know, untangle all of that. So we need some additional tools to navigate the messiness of human relationships and personality. Mindfulness gives us inner skills 
Nonviolent communication gives us some of the relational tools. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Sure. And we're sure there's no like ancient Buddhist text somewhere where the nonviolent communication is already written down. Like they didn't mention it at all. So there are some Buddhist texts actually where the Buddha does talk about communication. I'm actually, I teach, um, I teach a course every year in the summer um, through the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. We just started last week where we look specifically at that intersection. So the Buddha did offer uh, a range of teachings on communication, um, what's known as right speech or wise Mm -hmm. speech in the Buddhist tradition, where he talks about how to use your speech more effectively and how to channel this really miraculous capacity that we have as human beings to think and speak and communicate with one another in ways that are actually conducive to human well-being. So he talks about, for example, you know, avoiding speech that's false, that's harsh, that's divisive, or that's kind of pointless and meaningless is back to the Dilbert reference. That's where it's just useless speech. You're not actually talking about anything. There's no point to it. It's just wasting energy. Uh, He talks about cultivating speech that's true, that's helpful, connected to a purpose, that's kind, coming from a good heart, spoken with respect and dignity and care, and speech that's timely, that's, you know, aware of the context that's, you know, we're not out to lunch about what's happening around us and who we're talking to. We're actually aware and connected to that and and attuned to what's needed in the moment. So what's interesting, and there are many other texts, there's a whole kind of um, range of texts from the ancient Buddhist literature with examples of different kinds of speech and analogies and so forth, But what's interesting is the Buddha really points to the underlying roots in the mind and how to relate to the habits of confusion and self-centeredness and greed and reactivity and hatred. But there's not a whole lot of practical advice on how to have the conversation. It's much more these broader... Um, overarching signposts and guidelines. So there's a lot, a lot of details to fill in. And that's really where this more modern technique and discipline of nonviolent communication helps to fill in some of those gaps and really actualize it. In the interest of filling in some of the gaps, perhaps for the curious reader who's, um, you know, heard in the the preface or the beginning of our conversation about all the possible benefits here. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the important uh, elements of nonviolent communication. Sure. Yeah. What if, um, what if we just start briefly, we could touch on the first two foundations of mindful communication that I talk about in the book, just to kind of frame it and then move into the NVC material. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Sure. Sure. So, um, it's important for me to kind of set this up by having the, the, the most fundamental foundation first, because it's just like building a house. If you don't have a solid foundation, your house is really not going to last that long. So the first foundation for any meaningful or effective conversation or better relationship is presence. We need to actually 
be aware and be connected to ourself, to all of who we are, our body, our heart, our feelings, our values. And the instruction, the guideline I offer, as you know from the book here, is to learn how to lead with presence. And that means that it's the first thing we do. And we keep coming back to that. Can we just show up in the conversation? Can we really be fully here and give this other person, ourself, what's the matter at hand, our full attention? And there's a whole range of benefits that come with that, like having more information, being less reactive, um, having more stamina for difficult, intense conversations, which really needed today in our world. And then I talk about a bunch of different tools and tips for how to do that, how to stay more present and aware in a conversation. Two, two of the tips that I'll share for our conversation today that are I often find the most accessible and helpful. One is to just feel your body. Feel your hands, your feet. Just keep a little bit of attention in your physical body because the body is grounding and present no matter where our mind goes. It's always here. The other tip is to try pausing. To just take a half a breath or a moment before you respond to someone. It gives you a moment to collect your thoughts. If you are feeling you know, reactive or a little bit sharp in your speech, it gives us that, that, that space to reflect and take the edge off so that we're actually coming from a good place inside. So pausing is a really good tool for having more presence in conversation. And this really opens the door to everything else in communication. When we're not present, we're on automatic. When we're present, we have access to the skills and training we've had. We have access to our own wisdom, intuition, better intentions, and it opens the grant, it opens the door for connection. People feel it when we're really here. And people know when our mind is drifting or when we're multitasking. So this is the first foundation to lead with presence. Anything you want to chime in here, Josh, before I move on to the second? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I did have a lot of questions around that, but I'm also curious to, to keep moving. I guess one question I had was you described some of the different body anchors that mm-hmm. you can access right. uh, in order to ground yourself. And and they're kind of enumerated with their own specific ways of, of grounding you, which I thought was interesting and hadn't come across before. Mm. And also, I, I wasn't familiar with the, the center line grounding technique. So yes. I, yeah, I don't know if you... Uh, clearly, it seems from reading the book that... And I don't even know if there's a question here, but <laughs> at least mm-hmm. I found it remarkable that... Uh, grounding yourself in different areas your body might do different things. Yeah, exactly. That's that's really the one of the key takeaways, Josh. You just you just nailed it. That you know the body is it's really vast in a way. Once we start exploring it from the inside as a felt experience rather than as a visual image, we live in the body. It's not just something we see. We feel it. You know. So feeling your hands and being aware of the sensations in your hands. That's different than being aware of your spine and sitting up straight, which is also different than, say, being aware of your breath. So uh, the more we practice with these different reference points in the body, the more we learn um, how to modulate our attention in a conversation in order to have access to the kinds of flexibility, 
um, groundedness, connection that we want. And as the conditions in the conversation change, perhaps things get more intense or heated and we need to cool off or we start to feel a little bit, you know, of contraction or pressure inside. Well, we have tools with awareness that we can use to relieve that pressure to find more balance inside. And that's really what those those different grounding techniques and bodily reference points uh, help us with. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think one, one other thing that you um, say pretty often in the book is that, you know, it's, it's important with these kinds of practices, which are, you know, I'd say for most people, especially for myself, they're quite foreign ways of we're, we're used to just saying what's on our mind, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, we've been talking since age two or whatever. So encouraging people to, notice their bodies, you know, at the same time that they're speaking might be a little bit awkward at first. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I guess it, the encouragement here from your book, it seems, is to practice in sort of low stakes situations. Right. You know, get used to feeling your fingers when you're just <laughs> talking about the weather with your mom right. or something like right. that. Yeah. And then maybe graduating to more serious uses of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it. That's it. Exactly. And And the point is not like, you know, for some people feeling their hands doesn't help and that's fine. It's not, we're not, we're all different. And so it's actually, it's important to just find what works for you to stay present. And for some people, it's not the body for other people. It's pausing or slowing down the pace of their speech for other people. It's listening to sounds and really listening, not just to the other person, but the sounds around them for other people. It's really looking in the other person's eyes uh, paying attention to the quality of their face and facial expressions helps them to stay present. So we can be creative, we can experiment, but the aim, all of these are different tools. The aim again is how do I stay connected and present? How do I keep my attention here in the present moment rather than scattered across a million things and planning and remembering? And, and it's, it's hard today. You know, our world tends to fragment our attention. And so uh, we're going against the grain here by learning how to be more present in a conversation. And there are great benefits to be had from it and levels of intimacy and richness in life that open up when we're more present. Mm-hmm. So this gets us on the map. This really puts us in the arena of the conversation and the relationship. The next foundation is about where we're coming from. What's our intention? And intention doesn't mean the outcome. It's not the goal of the conversation. Like, I want you to apologize. That's what I would call the goal or an outcome that we were hoping for. Intention is how we're showing up. It's the motivation, or you could even say like heart quality behind the way we're speaking, the way we're listening. So, you know, unconscious habitual intentions could be things like being defensive or blaming the other person, or, you know, we're frustrated and we're, wanting to try to control the situation or to win or be right. All of these kinds of intentions creep in when we're on automatic or if we feel threatened. But we can, with mindfulness, choose more deliberate, conscious, and helpful intentions in our conversations. We can choose to be curious, to be patient, to come from kindness, to be honest in a way that's still respectful and loving. So one of the most powerful intentions that I encourage people to explore and cultivate is the intention to understand. Because communication, by definition, is about creating understanding. That's what communication means, is that we're sending and receiving messages. 
we're understanding each other. If we're not understanding each other, we're not communicating. So what better intention to have as a baseline than the intention to understand, essentially trying to uh, fulfill one of the purposes of the communication. So this starts to actually guide the conversation. It shapes our nonverbal communication and it helps us to begin to hear each other and align kind of um, with one another so that even if we disagree with the intention to understand, there's the possibility of collaborating and working on the problem together rather than being in a war with one mm -hmm. another. So this is the second foundation, which is to, to come from curiosity and care or to cultivate a genuine intention to understand. And why this is so important to me is that without this, without really explicitly training ourselves to have a helpful, clear, and conscious intention, we can take what we're about to talk about, what we're going to talk about next, the method and framework of nonviolent communication, and totally misuse it to manipulate and blame people, to control a situation. So the intention actually has to be skillful and aligned with the deeper purpose and values behind nonviolent communication for it to be helpful. Otherwise, we're just using a fancy technique to run all of our same games. And people, mm -hmm. people will get it. People will know. So the intention is, is what's underneath that's really animating it. I see. So you could come away with some of these tools you know, reflecting back what people say to you, pausing, uh, being present. And if you, if your intentions are not, you know, sort of wholesome or benign, they might just further your own sort of selfish interests rather than, um, some, yeah. some greater purpose. Exactly. And, and it might not necessarily be that nefarious, you know, it could just be unconscious, and it's very common for, for people when they're first learning these skills that it's like, oh, okay, this is going to help me get what I want. And then, we, and then we're not fully paying attention to where we're coming from and we're using the words and we're trying to use the form, but really what we're saying in our heart is you effed up and you're wrong and you shouldn't have done that and you need to apologize to me. But we're using really fancy words and trying to make it sound like we're being nice, mm. which is which is actually worse, right? Like if that's what's true, then just say it. You know, if I really believe the story that you messed up, I'm angry, and I really have this idea that you should have done something different, and I'm really fixated on it. I just want to be straight about that. I don't want to try to say something really fancy that says, you know, when you did that, I felt really disappointed because I really value keeping agreements and I think it would probably be the right thing to do to apologize. You know, it's like I'm kind of using the form of nonviolent communication. I'm making an observation. I'm talking about my feelings and needs. I'm making a request. But my tone of voice, the words I'm using, everything is basically saying, I think you're wrong. I'm blaming you <laughs> and you need to own up to it. And, you know, we're not fooling anyone other than ourself, right? So this is the intention is a lot of the work is actually not in what we say. It's in where we're coming from and how we're thinking about the situation. 
So one of the things I say over and over again when I teach is that skillful communication is not about what we say. It's not in the words. It's about where we're coming from and the quality of understanding or connection that we're able to create with the other person. How you get there matters less. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gosh, there's so much there. <laughs> Um, but I, I, yeah, I remember you mentioning this in the book about how people know can figure out, I think I actually on page 60, I have the quote right in front of me. Others mm -hmm. can feel where we're coming from inside, regardless of how polished our words are. Yeah, that's right. I guess there's probably some level at which both people sort of convince themselves that, you know, well, Oren's got this awesome technique. He's saying all the right things. I guess I should apologize. But there is some deeper level at which we know, like, you know, something funky is going on or I'm being manipulated in some sense, even if we maybe can't always put our finger on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends. Depends on the situation, right? Which is the other thing about communication is it's always context sensitive. For a friend of mine um, was telling me this story about... Um, another person, this is like two degrees removed, a friend of hers who had um, taken a nonviolent communication course. Okay. And you referenced this earlier that, you know, in nonviolent communication, one of the tools we use sometimes is reflecting back to someone what we're hearing them say. It's kind of a modified form of active listening. Um, the way I teach it and the way it's meant to be practiced is what's different is that it's genuine. We're actually really wanting to understand the other person and checking if we've understood what matters to them or how they're feeling. So this uh, friend, this third party, this person was um, trying out some of the tools with her younger brother or her nephew, who was, I don't know, maybe like six or seven years old or something. And she was using the form, kind of the formal technique of like making a reflection and then say, you know, stating her feeling in need and, and, and a request. And when you first learn it, if you try to actually use the form almost like a script, it's really awkward. It doesn't lead to more connection. Um, and her, her nephew or younger brother just looked at her and said, what are you doing to me? <laughs> you know, stop doing that thing. <laughs> so, you know, it's about being natural. It's about understanding each other. So it's important to recognize that the framework we're about to talk about, it's not a script. It's not telling you what to say. It's about focusing our attention in a new way to get clearer about what we really want to talk about and what's actually happening so that we can have the conversation we want to have. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, the philosophy major that comes back for like summer break from college and is suddenly much more annoying and everything his parents say are wrong now because exactly. of the tools that he's learned at school. Exactly. Yeah. So the third foundation, which is circling back to your question now about nonviolent communication, the third foundation of mindful communication that I teach is training your attention. What are you paying attention to? What are you focusing on? Are you focusing on all of your thoughts and judgments and evaluations about the other person? Are you really fixated on what they did or said and how it's wrong and they shouldn't have done that? Are you fixated on the outcome? Are you focusing on this must happen or else? Well, all of those things that we tend to get stuck on 
those are going to get in the way of actually having a conversation and understanding each other. It's not that they're not important, but if we're focusing there to the exclusion of what's right in front of us and what's actually happening in the moment, it's much harder to talk and hear each other. So nonviolent communication is a one way of looking at it is it's a, a method to train our attention to focus on four different aspects of human experience. The understanding being that when we can identify these different aspects of experience in ourselves and in someone else, it makes it a lot easier to understand each other. So the first is making clear observations. What actually happened in the situation? Not you're being a jerk or you always leave the kitchen a mess, but what happened? You know, you invited me to this thing and then canceled at the last minute. That's maybe what actually happened. An observation about what actually happened, distinct from our evaluations, interpretations, and judgments, which tend to kind of be the filter through which we are looking at and experiencing life. So using mindfulness to actually start to disentangle that and get clear about, okay, well, what am I actually reacting to? What really happened there? That's the first step. Make a clear observation to yourself, not to the other person. Get clear inside. What are you reacting to? What's the story you're telling yourself and what actually happened? And try to be as clear, specific, and neutral about it as possible. That's going to give you a reference point in the conversation to be able to say to the person, hey, you know, I wanted to talk about this thing that happened the other day, or I wanted to talk about this particular situation. And to frame it, to talk about it in a way that the other person recognizes, knows what you're referring to, and doesn't need to argue or get reactive because we're describing it accurately enough in a way that they recognize. Right. Just the facts. Exactly. Next, feelings. How do we feel? What's actually happening inside? How does the other person feel? How do you think they feel about it? Many of us have a lot of uh, barriers to honoring and making space for our emotions because of all the conditioning we've picked up around in society about how uh, vulnerable it is to feel things and how unwelcome it is to talk about emotions. And yet we still feel them. They're real. They're present. They're part of our life energy. So let's at least make space to acknowledge them inside, if not outside. So to actually get clear inside, how do I feel? Not what am I telling myself about this other person? How do I feel? And there's a certain kind of reclaiming our power when we start to really connect with our emotions. Oftentimes we tend to think about our emotions in ways that actually blame the other person. Like, I feel abandoned. Mm. I feel attacked. I feel dismissed. And if you start to look more closely at these words, as I'm guessing you have from re- reading the book, we re- realize that these words are, are interpretive. They're telling a story about the other person, what they did to me or what their intentions were. Abandoned, attacked, judged, um, misunderstood. is all about what they're doing to me, which means that they have all the power. And the only thing I can do is somehow change or control them to feel better. Whereas if I recognize, oh, I feel angry. I feel hurt. I feel 
confused, lost, frustrated, surprised, shocked, um, upset, really disoriented. This is now the center, the focus is actually back within our own person and our own being. And we can begin to actually attend to that experience. Not only that, when we talk about our emotions directly in terms of how we feel rather than what the other person is doing to us, again, there's less to argue about. Mm -hmm. If I tell you that I feel disoriented, that's like, okay, you know, that's your experience versus if I tell you, you know, I feel betrayed or misled. Now you're going to defend yourself because you're like, I didn't betray you. I'm not misleading you because I'm interpreting and judging your actions. So this is the next step to identify our feelings and emotions. What's actually happening for us inside? Right. So with the first step, there's less to dispute because it's sort of a neutral accounting of what's happened. Yes. And then in the second step, by sort of using like sort of non-directional labels for our feelings that are kind of contained with our own body or experience, uh, there's also less up for grabs. Yeah, precisely, precisely. So observations, feelings or emotions, terms are synonymous in this context. Third, and perhaps most importantly, we've already touched on it, why? If we're feeling an emotion, there's something we care about. This is where the human needs come in. Our feelings are information that point to our needs. When our needs are met, hey, guess what? We feel pleasant emotions. When our needs aren't met, we're wired to feel unpleasant emotions. It's a signal pointing to something that matters to us that says, hey, there's something here really important. You might want to pay attention to this. So don't stop at the emotion. Listen more deeply to say, okay, what's important to me here? What really matters to me? What do I want? What do I value? What do I need? And get clearer about what's underneath this for you that's actually important. And then do the same thing for the other person. Stretch your heart with empathy to see their humanity and consider what could matter to this person in this situation. What could they be valuing? This is where we start to really be able to express ourselves clearly and understand each other because we're getting underneath the judgments and interpretations and the blame to what's actually important. So, so in this example of the person who canceled last minute, on this third step of, of figuring out needs, would examples of that be like the need to have my time respected mm -hmm. or to have, uh, you know, loyalty in my relationships or dependability? Or is that the kinds of sure. needs that yeah. might be? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Respect, loyalty, consideration, um, predictability, you know, respect for my time, being included, you know, knowing that I matter. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, again, you might not choose to share all of those needs with this person, right? You might, you might decide that, yeah, okay, I, this is touching on an old wound about mattering, but I don't really feel comfortable telling that to this person. I'm not sure how they take that. So I'm just going to kind of keep that to myself and know, <laughs> you know, that I got a little bit hurt here because it's touching on my own self-esteem and doubt about do I matter? Does anyone care about me? But I might talk about this. I might talk about it with this person as you know, like I just I want to know that you respect my time, and if uh, if our friendship matters to you, you know, you cancel at the last minute. It's easy to think, well, you know, it must not be that important because I don't understand what happened. So could you tell me a little bit more information about 
how what happened that you ended up canceling at the last minute. And there we're at the third, we're at the, sorry, the fourth and final step, which is about making a request. So if we just share our feelings and needs or an observation, but don't give the other person or the conversation somewhere to go, it's like we leave the person hanging. And even if we're not blaming them, oftentimes people will hear blame because it's how we've Mm. been conditioned. So we want to actually offer a suggestion. We want to offer a way forward, which doesn't necessarily mean a solution. It's not like, and here's what I want you to do to make this right. I mean, maybe we'll get there in the conversation. It's more like, you know, here's what I think could be useful right now. Or here's here's what I think would be helpful. Or I'd love to understand more about this. Could you tell me X? So we want to end with some suggestion. It's not a demand. We're not controlling the conversation. It's an offer. We're saying, here's an idea for how we could move next in the conversation that I think could be helpful. Okay. So if it's not a solution, so solutions are easy to come up with, right? Next time sometimes you're, you're going to, okay, well, at least in this example of the yes. person who cancels the last minute, the suggestion would be, Hey, if, you know, if you're feeling sort of skittish or flaky about something we've agreed on, give me a little bit more notice, but that's not the only way to, I guess, kind of complete the cycle here. There's, there's other ways to do that that don't involve like actual problem solving. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So what I'm talking about is these different levels uh, that the conversation exists on. So there's the concrete level, which is, hey, next time, could you give me 24 hours notice? Or when you cancel, it'd be really helpful if you just tell me what's going on so that I'm not left to make up stories about why you canceled, right? It's concrete. Now, of course, in some situations, just cutting to the chase and asking for what you want is the most expedient and you don't need to deal with anything else. But in a lot of situations, there's also this other dimension, which is the relational side, which is like, you know, my feelings kind of got hurt, you know, or it brought a a bunch of stuff up and hey, maybe I'm overreacting, maybe it's my own stuff, but I, I just wanted to talk about it to clear the air. So there's this relational side of the conversation, which is more about how did I feel? Where were you coming from? Can we understand each other? Human beings want to be understood. We like it when people affirm and acknowledge our experience. And a lot of the times in a situation, part of what helps to resolve something is just some empathy. It's just the other person getting it and going, you know, I can understand why you would feel upset. I really do. You know, I'm glad you told me. I didn't want you to feel that way. So that's the relational side. And that's not about a solution. It's just about hearing each other. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes we might make requests that are more about hearing each other. Like, you know, can you understand where I'm coming from with that? Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? Or I, I just, I'm having trouble making sense of the fact that you canceled and would just really love to understand more about what was going on. Cause the story I keep telling myself is that, you know, you don't want to hang out with me and our friendship doesn't matter. And if that's true, like, yeah, okay. It's going to hurt, but I'd rather you tell me face to my face than, you know, kind of jerk me around. Sure. Wow. Yeah. Those, those are, that's really, and, you know, there's examples in the book um, of some of the dialogues that you've had with people in your life. And, mm-hmm. 
it's really enlightening uh, to see that there is another way of getting to the bottom of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we've already been speaking for an hour. I want to be respectful of your time. Oh, thanks. And you've done a really a terrific job. I really didn't need to do anything, <laughs> <laughs> which is always the best podcast guests kind of just hold forth on their uh, topic of expertise. So I really appreciate you taking us through this. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's a pleasure. I'm always really happy to share about this stuff because it's been so meaningful and transformative, you know, in, in my life. And yeah, just any any one that it can reach and help, uh, our world needs all the <laughs> all the support it can get to have better conversations and get along with each other these days. So happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So for, so I guess two things, one is, uh, for an interested, you know, listener wants to figure out Mm -hmm. how to implement or understand these things is, is the book what you would recommend is a a good first step or is there? Yeah. Yeah. For, for, for people who still read books, um, (laughs) it's a great first step. There's an audio book. There's the, you know, the, the real book, uh, say what you mean. Um, I've also got, uh, you mentioned 10% happier. I do have a, like a 12 or 14 part course on the 10% happier app on relationships, which goes into the communication model. That's also a good place to start. It's a little bit of a lighter lift. You know, each session is maybe five or 10 minutes. So it's bite-sized pieces you can take uh, one day at a time. Uh, And then there's also a bunch of resources on my website, free uh, guided meditations and articles, um, uh, some uh, guides that you can download. Uh, so if folks go to my website, orangejsofer.com, uh, you'll see there's a link for how to stop arguing. And there's a good article there and then a free download for getting some getting some tips and tools. Amazing. It's so cool to just have humans on earth that are just like contributing to the alleviation of like our mental suffering. It's, mm. it's quite a privilege uh, to live in this generation, yeah. I guess, when people are doing this. Yeah. Well, thanks for yeah. what you're doing too, Josh. Just getting all this information out there to people. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's well, it's 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 a gift uh, to myself to spend part of my day uh, talking about things that actually matter. So right on. Um, yeah, thanks so much. And if there's nothing else that you want to share, um, really appreciate talking to you today. Yeah, you too, Josh. And take care, everyone. <laughs>